Uh, it's just three verses. Um, you know, we, we may, maybe could have squeezed them in uh, last week, but I think these verses are such a beautiful picture of what the gospel means, um, how we look to Jesus uh, to seek and obtain God's favor, that, uh, that this is a, a wonderful a couple of verses to zero in on. So please stand in honor of God's Word. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 20 and just read through uh, verse 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Let me pray for us. Father, please bless the reading, hearing, receiving of your word. We, we depend on your Holy Spirit to give us light and to uh, illumine your word uh, to help us see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, so yeah, we were up at 5 a.m. yesterday. We put out our strawberries and cream. Some scones, gluten-free scones. Michael baked them. Uh, he loves his mama. Uh, and uh, like you and uh, millions I don't know, uh, of other people around the world, we, we watched the royal wedding. We watched the uh, uh, really wonderful mashup of sort of that, that high church, uh, Episcopal, Anglican, uh, uh, British culture, and then uh, bringing in good uh, American influences <laughs> into the wedding as, as Harry and Meghan got married, as uh, one British uh, newspaper put it, as, as Meghan got harried. Um, I thought that was great. Uh, so when, when you see that American influence, you know, there's this delightful disruption going on in uh, St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, uh, and, and it, was, uh, it, was, it was beautiful. Uh, that's not the only American influence abroad uh, this past week. This past week has felt really, really long to me. I don't know why, but, um, but this week also was uh, the opening of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem uh, when it officially opened. Uh, and, and so there again, you see uh, an American influence of, of sorts. Uh, and that disruption was not delightful. It was deadly uh, because Palestinian Arabs were protesting uh, this further validation of Jerusalem as the capital of the nation of Israel, right? So because of the Arab and Jewish conflict in that region that goes back centuries uh, for stuff that, you know, we don't necessarily uh, understand all the impact, all the, uh, the forces that play there, you nonetheless see that in Jerusalem there continues to be uh, an intense conflict uh, and, and when you look at the strategic role of that city, uh, this is a city whose influence uh, and, and holiness as a center of worship for Jewish people goes back thousands of years. 
Uh, for Christians, it goes back thousands of years. For Muslims, it goes back uh, 1,400 years, uh, you know, 1,400 years. Uh, there's a poll or a, a study in 2000 that was done. Uh, the statistical yearbook of Jerusalem listed 1,204 synagogues in Jerusalem, 158 churches, and 73 mosques in, in the city. Uh, so obviously, this is a mashup of uh, formal, traditional religious views, right? Can you, um, you, you can see from those statistics. Now, um, obviously, Jewish people believe that Jerusalem is holy because David established Jerusalem as the capital city for the nation, right? And, uh, and it continues to be central uh, in Jewish thought and practice. In fact, each year, um, observant Jews who uh, celebrate the Passover and, and, and have the Seder meal, it's where we get the Lord's Supper from. Jesus and his disciples who were Jewish were in the upper room. They were celebrating the Seder, and Jesus puts the new covenant uh, twist on it. Uh, so, observant Jews today who still celebrate the Seder, uh, each time, each year they celebrate that, they say as part of that liturgy, next year in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem continues to have this place of prominence in Judaism. We're not always altogether, um, you know, sure why Christians think that, that Jerusalem is, is holy, uh, but think about it. Look, Jesus was Jewish, the disciples were Jewish, so much in the New Testament is happening in Jerusalem. Um, and for a, not a small group, it's, it's a large minority uh, of, of Christians who think that Jerusalem will still be prominent uh, for Christianity uh, when Jesus returns. We'll talk more about that uh, later on in, this, uh, in the sermon. But what about Muslims? Muslims believe that Jerusalem is holy as well. In fact, it's the third holiest city in Islam uh, behind Mecca and Medina. Um, Jerusalem is holy because uh, there is an account in the Quran of Muhammad who made a miraculous overnight journey to Jerusalem. The distance means it would have been miraculous to go uh, to Jerusalem in return overnight on a horse. Uh, so, so it was a miracle in, uh, in the Quran's account. And when he arrived in Jerusalem... He, he arrived at the, the Temple Mount. Uh, the Temple you know, was, uh, uh, was destroyed by that time. He arrived at the Temple Mount. He ascended into heaven, is the Quran's account, where in heaven, uh, in Allah's presence, Muhammad received the second of the five pillars of Islam. Uh, the second pillar is the call to prayer. Muslims will pray, observant Muslims will pray five times a day. And that's where Muhammad received that second pillar of Islam. Um, so because of the prominence and the significance of that moment in Muhammad's life, the Dome of the Rock is built there. The Dome of the Rock is built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's the, um, the building with the golden dome uh, that you see in some of those uh, uh, panoramic uh, pictures of Jerusalem and so on, right? Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all have a claim on Jerusalem. All have uh, a sense of holiness uh, in that city. All of these are traditional religions. All of these religions are uh, pointing to a way to seek God 
and to seek him in such a way that you obtain his favor, which is what Zechariah is talking about. He's talking about uh, those who are going and pursuing God in Jerusalem uh, to seek the Lord, uh, to get his favor, and to seek the Lord of hosts, as you see in verse 21. That's what, that's what traditional religion teaches, right? It teaches how to have God's favor, how you can know that you're blessed uh, specifically, even how to know you're going to go into his presence when we leave this earth, when we die, uh, what's the afterlife all about, and so on. But even non-religious people, in a sense, are seeking the Lord. They may not be doing it in traditional ways, you know, they may not be doing it uh, in very liturgical ways or very familiar ways, but um, everybody, everybody is seeking some form of salvation. They may not classify it in, in a religious category, but there's a seeking, a longing for blessing, for favor uh, from, from whatever supernatural uh, power that they believe exists. So all day long, you know, people everywhere, all over this planet are seeking things like joy and happiness and love, um, excitement, fun, you know, you name it. They want deliverance from what feels like a curse and they want to experience favor. They want to experience blessing. They, maybe they're not so much interested in going to heaven when they die, or getting into heaven, but they sure are keyed in on getting heaven's blessings, some kind of divine favor into us, right? Everywhere you go, people are looking for a sort of salvation. Um, G.K. Chesterton often is, um, is attributed as the, the source of this quote, but I found out it wasn't him. It's a guy named Bruce Marshall who wrote a book called The World, The Flesh, and Father Smith. Um, and, uh, and it goes like this. Father Smith is uh, a, a faithful priest uh, in England, and, uh, and he, he's good. Um, he's, he's upright, kind of like Chesterton's Father Brown. Uh, so Father Smith uh, is walking home one day, and he passes the home of a very beautiful and very seductive uh, young woman who has a reputation and who flaunts it. You know, she doesn't care. And she actually is flirting with Father Smith. And the conversation doesn't go her way. Uh, Father Smith has character. He has integrity. And uh, he says, no, thank you. <laughs> and then she, you know, to sort of uh, mask her wounded pride, what do you mean, you know, I'm, you, you don't desire me? All men desire me. Um, and, and so to mask that, she, she takes a jab at him. And she says basically that religion is only a substitute for sex, Right? Like, we all know the power of sex, and religion's just sort of, you know, priests and those who are remaining celibate or whatever, those who are being chased are, are, are really just not in tune with their core desire, which is a sexual one. Father Smith has a different perspective, and he says his response is, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion. And that the young man who rings the bell at a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Everyone is looking for salvation. Everyone wants what's in the box. The wrapping may be different. You know, the wrapping may be a second vacation home in the mountains, at the lake, at the ocean, because uh, two incomes, two high-pressure jobs, a lot of money, man, you need to get away from all that stress and all that pressure, and so you, you, you retreat. You, you look for salvation and peace and blessing at your second home. Um, 
Other people are looking for salvation from life's boredom and monotony by just going to catch, you know, whatever's at Zeus. And you, you pay your, your 10 bucks and you get two hours of escape in some cool story. Um, what else are we looking for salvation from? Well, you know, people are, uh, I, well, I liked, uh, I liked Bishop uh, Michael Curry's uh, sermon yesterday and, and the wedding, and uh, he said something about the power of love and the power of fire, uh, and he was talking about how fire makes it possible for us to text and tweet and email and Instagram and Facebook and socially be dysfunctional with each other. <laughs> Because, you know, let's face it, a lot of us are, are trying to do, you know, this virtual life instead of pursuing a real life. We have real conversations with real community and so on. We're just looking for an escape from the fact that I'm lonely and I don't have any friends. And that's why people are hooking up on the weekends, because they're looking for salvation for their, their loneliness. That's why um, people have porn addictions, is because they're looking for salvation from a sexless marriage. That's why people have, um, you know, whatever other addictions because they're looking for salvation from a loveless marriage. I mean, whatever the curse is, whatever it feels like for you, we go to other things to look for salvation. Everybody's looking for salvation. Everybody's looking for some kind of way to tap into heaven's blessings to get a little bit of heaven down here on earth. And what Zechariah is saying is that peoples will yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. And, and they're going to come and they're going to say to each other, let's go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Why in the world would anybody go to seek the Lord of hosts? Well, to get his favor, right? So traditional religion, as we said, is talking about the favor of the Lord and more or less... Um, the, the, the presenting issue is what do we do in the afterlife and how can we know that all's going to be well? Um, you know, and generally, the older you get, you start being confronted with your mortality. You start going to more and more funerals. People start kind of going, you know, when, I, when it's my funeral, I sure as heck don't want anybody to stand up and say, well, we all know where he went. We all know where she went. And it's, and it's not good, right? I mean, nobody, you've ever heard that at a funeral? Nobody says that. Because everybody sort of thinks that, well, if you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven when you die. And if you're religious, then that kind of gives you extra credit and so on. Um, and so that's why generally traditional religions are going to say, all right, this is why you should seek the Lord and so on. You know, even people who aren't religious, though, they're seeking the Lord too. Maybe they're not thinking again about how to go to heaven when they die, but they're thinking about, um, what do I do about uh, having enough money uh, to pay the bills? Uh, how are we going to you know, make sure that there's crops in the field? Uh, how, what am I going to do with my life? Uh, what do we do about our sick kids? What do we do about having no kids? Um, and do you know what? People have been praying those kinds of prayers and concerned about those kinds of pressing life issues for thousands of years. We're just not very modern after all. These are the same things that people have been seeking the Lord and trying to entreat His favor about for thousands of years, for as long as human civilization has been around, as long as the curse has been in this world. And the, the beautiful truth of the Bible is that God says, come, come to me. Seek the Lord. This is Isaiah 55, another prophet 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So the call uh, from the Old Testament, the call of the New Testament is, yes, seek the Lord. Listen to that voice inside you, whether you're thinking of eternal life and how to get into heaven when you die, or whether you're thinking of this life and how to get heaven into you, seek the Lord. Tap into and listen to how God put eternity into your heart. Whether you're, you know, been around the traditional church route for a long time or whether, you know, this is sort of new to you and you don't consider yourself very religious, the call is the same. Seek the Lord. And where we see, um, you know, this, this question coming up in Zechariah is that, that, again, these are the common concerns that people have had for thousands of years and this is what drives people to seek God. We all want to be blessed. We want to know that God is with us. And so, you know, Zechariah gives you this image of, of in those days, verse 23, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take the hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Zechariah says, in those days. What days? That's a, that's a technological, theological term, right? For the days of fulfillment, sort of the, the last days uh, the days when God is going to bring to fulfillment and to fullness what he's promised. And when you see this promise that there's going to be this people from all the nations coming and taking the hold of the robe of a Jew, uh, I'm not going to focus on those 10 men specifically. I want to talk about one woman who takes hold of the robe of one Jewish man. And Mark tells us about her in, his, in the fifth chapter, his gospel, where a great crowd followed Jesus and were, were thronging about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she heard the reports about Jesus. She heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And so here is a woman who is seeking the favor of the Lord, who's heard about him, and says, I myself am going, and I'm going to entreat the favor of the Lord because I know that if I grab hold of the, the hem of the robe of this Jewish man, God is with him. What do we know about this woman? Um, well, the, we know she's, she's incredibly sick. Um, and I love how in the Bible, uh, it's just not uh, spiritual superficiality. Uh, it's very gritty and real. And what we're talking about is a woman who has been bleeding and hemorrhaging for 12 years. So uh, ladies, you know, you know when your period goes long and it's uncomfortable and you're like, all right, <laughs> Enough already. Uh, can you imagine your period lasting a week? All right. That's long. Not unheard of, but that happens from time to time. But what about a period that lasts a month? What about a period that lasted 12 months? 
Well, you didn't stop bleeding for 12 months. And then exponentially blow that away and think about a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. In the first service, actually, a guy came up to me. He was uh, a family friend of the wards. And uh, he's a gynecologist. And he talks about the women he sees who have been bleeding for three months. And, and they're just at their wit's end. And I want you to imagine a woman who's been bleeding for 12 months. How sick is that? Uh, obviously, she hasn't reached menopause. Uh, so we know she's, she's, she's younger than probably 50. And I think the chances are high that uh, she began this bleeding either after her first child or she miscarried. And we know that people married young back then, and they had, their, they had children right out of the chute. She was probably a teenager. So it's very likely. This woman's not even 30 years old, but she's incredibly aged and withered and anemic and sick. And she's going to die if she doesn't get better. She's very sick, she's very poor. And she spent all of her money on doctors, uh, some who no doubt mean well, and they've done their best, and they're just, uh, they're just out of resources, their hands are empty. Some probably were taking advantage of her, who knows. But there's no more doctors. She's run out of options, and she spent all of her money. And she's isolated. She's alone. Um, you know, it's really not unlikely that if she was married, he's gone. I mean, he's not in the picture, at least as the gospel writers uh, record the account. Um, because, you know, if you can't bear children back then as a woman, you're cursed. And your husband leaves you. And you're alone and you're isolated. Furthermore, she's been bleeding, which means ceremonially, according to Levitical laws, she's unclean. She's not allowed to be uh, in any uh, synagogue or temple or place of worship. Furthermore, she's not allowed to be in public because if she touches somebody else, it makes them unclean, then they can't go to worship. So she's just, she's miserable. She is at her wits end, and she's desperate. This woman's desperate enough to go... <laughs> Listen, I mean, imagine hearing about Jesus. Oh, there's this guy, and he heals people. And then you go, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go touch the hem of his robe, and I'll be better. Um, who thinks that would work? Well, somebody really desperate does. And furthermore, she's so desperate. I, I love the, um, the, the, this painting by James Tissett um, over 100 years ago. I know it's small, it's black and white. You can barely make it out. But what you see is a very crowded city, right? A very crowded street of a city in Galilee, uh, north of Jerusalem. And there's Jesus in the white robe, his back's to us, and kneeling in the foreground is this woman, and she's got her right arm extended up to touch the back of Jesus' robe. And you have to look closely to find her. It's kind of like a where's Waldo, right? Um, that's intentional by the artist because it's intentional by the woman. All she's thinking about is how can I go unnoticed Get close to Jesus, touch him, because if, I'm, if, I, if somebody sees me, I'm going to be exposed and condemned for breaking the law. Um, and furthermore, you know, maybe she doesn't want this to be so public, because if it doesn't work, then what? Can you imagine how crushing that disappointment would be? What if she doesn't get better? Let me 
go back to Mark chapter 5, the next words after Mark says, even uh, the woman's thinking to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. Immediately. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And so his disciples said to him, "Uh, you see the crowd (laughs) pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, had she been healed, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She's healed. She's whole again. She's clean again. She's she's young again. And she's busted. (laughs) Jesus turns around and says, not so fast, young lady. Um, You know, and you wonder, why would Jesus make a scene out of this? Um, What's going on that he wants to expose her, right? I mean, all she wants to do is hide. She just wants to get She wants to get whole and then go hide. And Jesus says, no, that's not how this is going to work. I'm not a lamp that, I'm not a magic lamp that you rub and you get better and then you just go live the rest of your life. Um, Jesus was so, uh, was such that he was so generous uh, with his grace that he would just (laughs) heal people just seemingly indiscriminately But we see that that's not what he's content to do. Um, He says, come to me, seek me, and get favor, get connection, get blessing from God for the places where you feel and experience the curse in this life, right? But he wants so much more than that. He wants her to be restored to him. He wants her to know God. He wants her to, uh, to not just be free from the curse in this life, but to be blessed eternally. And so he restores her to himself, to God himself, and furthermore, by declaring her healing and declaring this pardon over her publicly, he's restoring her uh, to the community that she's in. All over, people are hearing, no, she's a different person now. She's whole and and she's healed. And this is just a picture of how Jesus uh, blesses us. He doesn't reject her. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't shame her. He restores her. He blesses her. He heals her and he saves her. I love how he turns around. He gives her the opportunity to come forward. He goes, who touched me? And the disciples who, they're, um, the disciples are used to asking the dumb question and, uh, and Jesus kind of rolling his eyes at them like, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by these people. And instead, Jesus asks the seemingly dumb question and you can see the disciples' eyes rolling like, are you serious? You're asking who touched you and we're like on a crowded elevator? Um, it's pretty funny. But Jesus has this purpose. He wants her to come forward. And he wants to restore her completely. Not just her body, but her community and eternally uh, and in all these ways for her 
to experience salvation. Truly, salvation. And where does she find it? She finds it by grabbing hold of the robe of a Jewish man whom she knows God is with him. She knows that God is with him. She knew if she had any chance of gaining God's favor, it would be through Jesus. Jesus grants us God's favor. How does he do that? Well, look at, this, look at this episode, and you see a beautiful picture of it. You know, she comes to him, she touches his robe, and her bleeding stops. Why? How does that happen? Because Jesus knew that there was a day coming very soon in his life when he would bleed for her. And he wouldn't stop bleeding until he died. And because he laid down his life for her, she could have eternal life. His blood spilt meant that her sins were covered. That's what the cross teaches us. That's that's what it meant that Jesus would die as an atoning sacrifice, that blood was shed to to pay the penalty for our sin, to remove our guilt, uh, to remove our shame, to remove our rebellion, to, to pay that penalty so that therefore we are now not guilty before God. And Jesus did that for her. He did it for us. He does it for all who trust in him. So Jesus would bleed for her and and, and she did something very bold and, and controversial when she touched Jesus. I mean, look at faith. It's incredible. But, but there's something uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, controversial about her intentionally going up and touching him when she knows anybody I touch is going to be made unclean. And that doesn't bother Jesus in the least. In fact, what he what he tells us on the cross is, bring to me. Bring to me your pollution. Bring to me your uncleanness. Bring to me your dirt. Bring to me your shame. Bring to me everything that you would be absolutely appalled for anybody to find out about you. Bring to me your deepest secret, and I'm going to cover it. I'll take it on myself. And in exchange for you giving me your uncleanness, I will give you my purity. I will give you my beauty. I will give you my brightness. I will give you my rightness, my righteousness in exchange for your sin. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what he did on the cross. And he rose from the dead to make sure that that would have a permanent, eternal effect on all who trust in him. So that, guess what? We get God's favor In this life, we get the blessings of heaven. Not perfectly. We still wrestle with sin. It's the now and the not yet, right, that we were talking about earlier in the worship service. But we do get God's favor. Yes, we do. We're loved by God, blessed by him because of Jesus. And we're given the promise of eternal life. Zechariah promises a day that's coming when the nations are going to recognize that this Jewish man, God is with him, and if we grab hold of him, we will have the favor of God. And that is exactly what's fulfilled in Jesus. Who else would you worship? Why go anywhere else? I don't care if you come from another religious background, traditional or non-traditional, or if you don't consider yourself religious, you're just a spiritual person or whatever. What would keep you from grabbing hold of Jesus and never letting go? Why wouldn't you worship him? Look at his grace and his generous spirit and the power of God working through him. Nobody else has ever compared to him. And the things that he did and the way that he died and why he died and how he rose again and how he reigns right now 
There's nobody else like him. Um, I, I mentioned this quote last week, and I, I didn't have it memorized, but I just, I, it's so good, I just wanted to repeat to you Philip Yancey. He says, why am I a Christian? I sometimes ask myself that question. And to be perfectly honest, the reasons reduced to two. First, the lack of good alternatives, and then here's how he describes Jesus. Brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble, Jesus stands up to scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. Have you grabbed hold of him? Have you laid hold of Jesus? Is he in whom you have placed your hope and your trust and your, your, your connection for heaven and blessing? Have you identified Jesus as the source of that? And if you haven't, why not? Why not? Zechariah says that the nations will come. Many nations and strong, many peoples and strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Um, it's Pentecost Sunday, right? And in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, we read about the Holy Spirit descending on the disciples. And this is a time when people from all the nations were in town for one of the feasts. And we read about how Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? How are we hearing through these Jewish disciples our own languages being spoken, and this you know, supernatural event called Pentecost. What is this about? That's a great question. What does this mean? Peter answers that question. In his sermon in the next chapter in Acts, Peter says, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the hope. He is the Lord and He is the Christ. He's the King and the Savior in whom the whole world, many peoples and strong nations should come to and embrace and lay hold and grab His robe because God is with Him. So the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy about Jerusalem is at Pentecost. And I know there's a a group of, of Christians who believe that Jesus is supposed to come back to the city of Jerusalem and reign there for a thousand years and Israel's going to have prominence again. Look, I, with all due respect, uh, that's just not big enough. This is not grand enough. It's not cosmic enough. This has been fulfilled in Jesus already, and the church is the heavenly Jerusalem, and that, that church triumphant, the saints who have gone before us, are going to come down as uh, John envisions in Revelation that the, the new Jerusalem will descend like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, and we will be reigning with Christ forever. We will be with him. God is with him, and we will be with him, and he will be our groom and we will be his bride, the new Jerusalem. So we have heard that God is with you and the inhabitants of these cities are going to say to one another, let's go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Again, have you gone? And furthermore, what about, what about our neighbors? And what about the nations? What about the others who haven't yet heard? Like this woman, she heard 
about Jesus. She heard about his miracles. She heard about his teaching. She heard about his power. She heard about how God was with him. And she went to him. What about our neighbors and the nations? How will they hear without you and me sharing our story about how God is with us through Jesus, how I laid hold of him. I grabbed him by the robe, and I haven't let go, and I'm following him wherever he leads. Uh, evangelism doesn't have to be uh, uh, scary. It doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to uh, involve a bunch of classes. You know, the best way to do evangelism is to just listen to people talk about their pain. Listen for the places where people are bleeding. Where are they hemorrhaging? Where are they longing for salvation? If you listen long enough and if you love long enough, you'll you'll get the opportunity, I promise, to share, first of all, I'm sorry, that must be terrible. And then secondly, uh, here's some of my experience of that kind of pain or something similar to that, and here's how Jesus has helped me. Here's how Jesus makes me clean again. Here's how Jesus has removed my shame. Here's how Jesus has pardoned my guilt. Here's how Jesus has healed me. Here's how Jesus is teaching me to hope and the ultimate healing. Here's how Jesus is restoring all things. But you've got to have an experience of that in order to share that. So if you don't have an experience of that, lay hold of Jesus. Grab him by the robe and don't let go. And if you do have an experience of that, don't keep it to yourself. Go to your neighbor, go to the nations, go to the next city, go wherever, and tell them, I am going to entreat the favor of the Lord to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going, come with me. Come with me. We um, watched the royal wedding, right? Everybody was so excited about Harry and Meghan. They'd been waiting for months and all of the news articles, and I can't remember, I mean, how many times can somebody on the news say, I wonder what her dress is going to look like? Um, you know, all the anticipation building up to the royal wedding, and what the cake's going to be, and what's she going to wear, and what's he going to wear, and who's going to be there, and you got all that hubbub, and all that anticipation, and, and it came and went, and it was beautiful, but you know what? It, that, that was like a, um, a shotgun, podunk, backwards, you know, um, farce of a wedding compared to what's coming compared to what's coming. Let's not lose hope in what's coming. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people." God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And 
death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Jesus, thank you that you have promised a day when all that is ugly and broken and, and painful uh, will go away. And you will restore everything perfectly, and beautifully, and fully. Uh, give us patience in the not yet. Give us hope in, in what is to come. And uh, help us to celebrate how heaven is breaking through now. How we do have an experience of your favor through Jesus. How God is with Jesus. And Jesus is with us. And we are your bride. And we are your people. Lord, would you give us that hope and courage? Um, would you compel us uh, to share uh, with those who are seeking salvation in all the kinds of ways, but missing the one who grants it to them? Lord, would you enable us uh, to be your feet and your mouth uh, to share the good news of how you are saving this world? In Jesus' name.